Hey, good morning, Gretna. It's Pastor Rob. It's great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Have you ever had your boss walk into in walk up to you, whether it be in your office or on the job site or wherever in the, on the assembly line, and say to you something along the lines of, "Hey, Rob." Well, probably not Rob, because <laughs> that's probably not your name. But hey, you know what? This is no big deal, but I, I have something to tell you. This is no big deal, but I'm moving you to third shift. Uh, this is no big deal, but I'm changing your job description. This is no big deal, but we're about to merge with another company. Or, or, or maybe you've received it from your kids. Maybe, maybe your kids have come home from school one day and said, Dad, something happened at school today. It's no big deal, but... I think in both those cases, and honestly, most cases when we use, use or hear that phrase, it's no big deal, whatever comes after the but is probably going to be a big deal. It's probably something that really will matter to you if you're being told it's no big deal. And if I stop and think, if I use that phrase myself, if I'm walking into a conversation with somebody that I, I know is going to be challenging, right? Maybe it's going to affect them emotionally or physically or spiritually. And, and I say to them, you know, it's no big deal. It'll be okay, right? This is not a big deal. I could easily convince myself that that's an effort on my part, to help them see it's no big deal, to help them really understand it's no big deal. But really, when I use that phrase, it's really about me. It's really about me knowing there could be a reaction and me not wanting to experience that reaction, right? Maybe it's me not wanting to experience them screaming at me because they're angry, Maybe it's I'm trying to minimize what they see as potential impact so that um, we can move on with whatever else it is we have to do. That phrase, it's no big deal, again, almost inherently means that for at least one party in the conversation, it probably is a big deal. And it probably will affect them greatly. And it's probably not the person using or thinking the phrase. It's probably this person on the other side. Today, we're going to dive into something that I think we often, especially in our relationship with God, um, try to tell him, and in many ways ourselves, it's no big deal. And yet that thing that we're going to talk about is, is such a big deal that it is the reason we are in this Lenten season, that we are looking forward to the events of Jesus dying on the cross, right? His death, his burial, his resurrection, and, and that, that reason that brought him here to earth, that caused him to, to leave heaven, to come here for us and make that decision for us, to give of himself. It was such a big deal that he was willing to go through all of that for us, despite the fact that we don't deserve it. And yet, we still, I think, tell ourselves, 
as we're talking to God or rationalizing our own behaviors, we say to ourselves, it's no big deal. And that thing is sin. That, that word that none of us like to use, certainly we don't like to have it applied to ourselves. But, but sin is, sin is at its core something that we all have. In fact, Jesus goes out of his way to say that, that darkness, which is sin in his, in his vernacular, the, the, this darkness comes out of men. It, is, it comes from within. It is not what goes into someone that defiles them, but what comes out of them. We have within us this desire to do what we want to do and rebel against God in so many ways, to chase a feeling or to chase our own dreams or to invest our own time and energy and, and treasure and talent in things that matter to us rather than things that matter to God. That is, that is rebellion. That is an open act of me saying to God, this thing you're calling me to do, this thing you're calling me to think or to be, you know what, it's really no big deal if I'm not doing that. When in fact to God, it is. Sin is, is a violation of our relationship with God. It's, it's, a, it's a choice to say the things of God, you, God, Lord, are less important to me than my words, at least, when I say I've committed to you, my words, at least, demonstrate, right? They say, I'm with you. And it's the, the problem that God had with his people has had with them all throughout time. He repeatedly told the people of God something along the lines of, your lips, they're saying the right things. All the right words are coming out of your mouth. But your actions are completely out of line. Your hearts are far from me. You are not who you say you are. You are not being who you say you need to be. And you're trying to tell me that's no big deal. It's something akin to violating your marriage, cheating on your spouse, and then trying to tell them it's really no big deal. Let's pretend like this never happened. It did happen. It is a big deal. And it's going to take some time to heal it. Sometimes when we're sinning, when we're rebelling against God. And, and as we go through this, phrase, this, this sermon, I hope it gets easier for us to say that word, sin, and have our name attached to it. Because though it doesn't feel good, it is something we need to recognize and we need to remember. Sometimes that sin shows up as anger. When, when things don't go our way, we get anger, angry at the Lord. We get angry at people in our lives. We get angry at politicians. We get angry at situations. We get angry when things don't go our way. At, at its core, that's, that's selfishness. That's me being focused on getting what I want while telling the Lord whatever he wants out of this is no big deal. Sometimes it, it shows up as just selfishness with our, our time and our treasure and our talent as we use the gifts that God has given us for ourselves rather than his mission and his purpose. Again, God, I'm telling you that your mission is it matters, 
but the fact that I, I'm not investing in it physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's really no big deal. It'll be okay. I'll get to it eventually, which we all know means I hope I don't have to actually do that at some point, right? Sometimes this, this sin, this rebellion against God shows up as pride and an unwillingness to admit our own brokenness and start to let the Lord repair it. And the truth is, it has a massive effect on us. It has a massive effect on us and our relationship with God. Uh, among other things, sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit. It causes him to weep. That's what Ephesians 4.30 says, that it causes him to weep, to grieve. It brings sadness upon him while we're busy saying it's no big deal. Holy Spirit says otherwise. It separates us from God as well. It's an obstacle that keeps us from seeing clearly what he would have us do. The truth is also that sin enslaves us. John 8, 34 says that. It says that sin, we are a slave to the sin that we are committing. And I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really like or want to be a slave to those things. And yet we are. Because it's, it's really funny if you've ever been around someone with an addiction, whatever that addiction is, you can see it from the outside. You can say to them, man, you are willing to sell everything for that addiction, for that thing that you have to have, whether it be a drug or it be porn or be whatever that is. And yet God warns us that, that sin, period, causes us to be addicted. We can become quickly addicted to that and we will give up everything to get it. It leaves us, sin leaves us walking in darkness. And ultimately sin, the wages of sin, according to Romans, is death. It has a cost. That is what sin does. The truth is for us to recognize the sheer darkness of that sin, because remember, we're good at saying it's no big deal, right? It's no big deal. But to really see it, to see how dark it is, we must be willing to place it next to the light of God's goodness. We must be willing to hold it up and say, you know what, where am I and how much do I reflect the Lord's light in my life because it's only then that we can see the darkness and in our text today that's exactly what Isaiah discovers for himself let's read with me we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6 today we're going to go through verses 1 through 8 but we're going to start with 1 through 5 as we read and then we'll break that down a little bit and then go on to the next thing it says this I'm going to read out of the Christian Standard Bible in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. 
And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. So can you imagine, can you imagine having this experience where you are at, in the very presence of God and the hem of his robe, you know, that part that's like this big at the bottom of your pants or, or your dress, it's this big, or if it's, you know, maybe larger, it might be this big, this, this much, right? This fills the whole temple. The hem of his robe fills the whole temple. I'm going to guess he probably couldn't even see all of God. That is likely the meaning here is he could not. God is so grand and so powerful and so all-encompassing. He will later say his glory fills the earth. God's presence is so massive that he cannot even begin to fathom it. And then there are, in the midst of this, these seraphim, these winged creatures that are, are already holy, ethereal beings that are larger and more powerful than humans, right? And they have six wings. That's not Cupid with a bow and arrow, by the way. These are warriors with six wings. And the, the amazing part is, even as these holy beings, they are using four of those six wings to protect themselves from the glory of God. They have two on their eyes and two on their feet, and they're only using two to fly. And that's all because they are in the very presence and the glory of God. And even they recognize they are not worthy to be sitting in his presence. And so they protect themselves. I wonder if we had six wings at times, would we do the same? Or would we turn away from God's glory and use all six wings to fly our own way and say, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. Don't look behind the curtain, it's no big deal, right? And then their praises as they cry, holy, holy, holy. They are shaking the earth. <laughs> Because I'm old, <laughs> I'm having visions of Wayne's world, of Wayne and Garth as they, they walk around the corner into the backstage area of a rock and they meet a musician, a rock musician, they meet Alice Cooper and they immediately drop to their knees and they start going, we're not worthy, we're not worthy, real not, we're not worthy. But in all kidding aside, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing right now. He has dropped to his knees in the presence and the glory of God and saying, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, woe is me, I am ruined. You know, there, there, it's easy for us to point out the sins of the world. You know, we know we live in a, a, a sinful world. It surrounds us and it affects us. We know we live in a fallen creation. We see the, the illnesses that are around and the, the natural disasters we go through. And, and mosquitoes, I'm confident that's one of my grandest signs that the world has fallen is mosquitoes. But we see and know this is not right. This is not perfect. This is not what it should be. And we see the worldly sins, the fallenness of people, people who make ungodly choices that cause pain and cause anger and frustration and hurt. But Isaiah isn't 
talking in this text about that. In fact, he spent the last five chapters or the first five chapters of the book before we get to this point in the scripture talking about something closer to home, talking about a corporate sin, the sin of the people of God. He spent those five chapters talking about how angry and offended God is at the sin of his people. He's not slightly perturbed. He's not mildly annoyed. He is angry. So angry, in fact, that the people of Israel face a judgment the likes of which they could not even begin to fathom. It's going to cost them a ton. And he gives glimpses to them of what restoration could look like and how it's possible. But make no mistake, if they stay on the path they're on, their corporate sin is going to lead them to a place they would never in their wildest nightmares think they could be. But here in this text, for the first time in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has recognized and made that the sin challenge, the difficulty, isn't just about the brokenness of the world out there, everything else. It isn't just about the people of God. It's also about himself. And that's, that's the one that we have a tendency to say is no big deal. We can point out the sins of everybody else and say they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that. And that may be true, but we have a real blindness when it comes to seeing ourselves and our own sin and our own brokenness. And we have a tendency, as we talked about before, to say it's no big deal. Their sin is, but my sin's under control. It's not a problem. But Isaiah has realized something. He's realized that he is in the presence of the king, of the Lord of armies. He is in the presence of the glory of God, and he is forced to see just how big a deal his brokenness is, just how much darkness comes from within, and just how much sin he has, and he is experiencing, and he is committing. And so Isaiah demonstrates something here that we as followers of Christ would call repentance. Recognizing, woe is me, I am lost, I am ruined. I can't, I can't, I, no, I, I have fallen. I have, I'm not who I need to be. I am not acting as God would have me act. I have sinned against you. I have rebelled against you. He has admitted, he's had to admit that in light of the glory of God, he is not the man that he thought he was. That's what repentance, how it begins. It's an admission that he is not the man that he thought he was. He has realized there's a cost here. Woe is me, I am ruined, right? I've said it a thousand times because I want us to, to remember that in the face of God, that is the response we will all have. I'm ruined. And some translations say, I am lost. He's realized that there's a cost to his soul. And he's recognized that he needs God's, God's forgiveness in order to move forward. And in light of that, he's not worthy of it, but he needs it. I think as, as 
if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, and, and even, even if you're not, repentance stands at the very basis, the very beginning of our relationship with Jesus. In fact, it comes before salvation. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Jesus is, is, is saying some of his first words ever recorded because also the, the gospel of Mark is older than the other gospels. It's the oldest. These are some of the first words recorded and written down for us from Jesus. And in verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, it says, Jesus himself says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He doesn't even play games with it. Right out of the gate, he says, Repent and then believe. Clearly, this is a key to what it means to come to follow the Lord. And if you're not yet a follower of Christ, there's a reason for it. The reason is because we, we don't always recognize our own brokenness. And the truth is we always, well, almost often don't recognize the reality that we cannot resolve that issue ourselves. And beginning by saying, I recognize my state and beginning by recognizing saying, I have fallen short and I have rebelled and I am not who I think I am. I am not the person you are calling me to be and I've tried too hard on myself is necessary for us to get our own selves out of our way so that the Lord can do his work within. And it is absolutely worth it. And as, as, as Christians, we know that too. We've made that commitment. We've said, I repent, right? I repent of my sins. I hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized. I'm moving forward in my relationship with God. I've made that commitment to him. And that is incredible. But the fact is repentance is part of an ongoing relationship with God. And the reason for that is very, very simple. Um, until the sin is gone, <laughs> the repentance will be needed. If we're going to continue to make mistakes, if we're going to continue to allow that darkness from within to overcome the light that God is shining, if we're continuing to rebel, then we are going to continually need to repent. And, and repentance is not the same as penance. Um, you know, there's a um, within the, within the Catholic Church, they there's this notion of you confess your sins to a priest, and then then you you pay a penance. You rub your rosary beads and say 15 Hail Marys. I don't know for sure what that is because I'm not Catholic, but there's that idea that that you're paying back that cost. You're paying a penance, the penalty for what you've done. Repentance is not paying that penalty because the truth is we can never pay the penalty. If God were to exact it from us, it would be far too much for us to ever begin to bear. But ongoing repentance in the face of our sinfulness, it reminds us of our two true brokenness. In Pro Proverbs chapter 21, verse 2, it says, All a person's ways seem right to him. Right? So that's what Isaiah has experienced, right? He has experienced, he thinks he's going along just fine. He thinks it's the world around him that's busted. He, he's called out the people of God and said, You guys are broken and messed up and bad. But he is not... But it's just now that he said, you know, I, I thought all my ways were good. I thought I was moving in the right direction. But, if, but I've realized I'm not. 
And to finish the proverb, it says, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs hearts. The Lord sees what causes us to make those decisions, and he knows where our heart is despite where we think it is. We say no big deal. He says very big deal. Repentance also opens our heart to the work of Holy Spirit. In Proverbs 1, did you know the Holy Spirit was still there? Was there too? In Proverbs 21, verse 23, actually out of the NIV, it says, repent at my rebuke. There's that word, repent. When I come and tell you, you need to repent. Then I will pour out my thoughts on you and I will make known to you my teachings. It's then after repentance that Holy Spirit's voice becomes clearer because we've dropped the walls, we've got the pretense out of the way and we've said, God, I am yours. Ultimately, repentance is humility before the presence of God. It is seeing his grandness and his glory and saying in the face of that, I am not worthy in the face of that, I have such a long way to go and I have no hope. Woe, I am lost. I am ruined without you. Author C. John Miller says, repentance is continually being undone in respect to all human righteousness, all those things we, we try to say about ourselves, right? We are good, we are this, we are that, all the positives so we can tell God it's no big deal with the rest of this stuff. But he says, repentance is continually being undone in respect to all human righteousness, followed by going outside of ourselves in faith to Christ alone for salvation. Repentance means giving up on myself for my own salvation and trusting God to get me there. And Isaiah discovers something here that we're about to read in, in verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 6. He discovers that it frees us to serve the Lord. Because remember, one of the, the challenges, the consequences of sin is, is we become enslaved to it. It begins to drive us. It begins to, to take us where it wants us to go. And repentance breaks those chains. It breaks that bond and allows us to again move forward where God wants us to go, to serve him and to serve his purposes in the world. Listen to this. In Isaiah 6, verse 6 through 8, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. Remember, this is after he's dropped to his knees and after he said, Woe is me, I am ruined. I'm in the face of the king. He's recognized his state. One of the seraphims flies, flew to me, and with his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. He has freed him because he has given of himself. He has recognized where he is at. He has admitted it and he has said, Lord, I repent. I, I need you. And then it says in verse eight, then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. It was only after that that Isaiah was able to go on the mission that God wanted him on to be 
who God wanted him to be and to be his messenger into the world. As we're in the midst of this Lenten season, I think each of us need to remember, we need to ask ourselves what we need to repent for. Because again, repentance is kind of this thing we need to do as long as we're continuing to sin, which I'm fairly confident this side of heaven probably isn't going to happen. But maybe it's following our own desires instead of God's, using our, our time, talent, and treasure for our own means rather than his. Maybe it's hiding or holding on to our own sins, that sin that feed in the darkness and not telling him, opening it out, pulling it out into the light. Maybe it's ignoring our own brokenness and being really quick to point it out in others. Maybe it's disobeying his commands, the, the great commission. Because at the end of the day, that is one of the reasons we are the church. That's one of the calls that he has placed upon us as his people is to tell others about him, to go and make disciples and teach them. And we disobeyed that. Maybe our sin is not moving forward in our faith, trusting that his ways really are better than our ways. As we approach Easter, we need to keep in our sights here that the fact is that, that the Lord has already paid the cost of all of our sins. He has paid the cost of everything that we've ever done and everything we're going to continue to do. But there is an expectation that we will continue to move forward recognizing that we have broken, we are broken, that we continue to drop the ball, and that we are continually in need of his forgiveness. And that begins with recognizing that we are sinful and with continuing to repent for it. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is what he is calling you to. That is what he is calling me to. And that is what he has offered in the blood of his son. I'm going to close this in prayer today. Father God, we are humbled at your feet we are reminded in our text today that um, though we like to see ourselves as being good people and on your side in all things that sometimes the sin from within the darkness from within clouds our capacity to see your call and to obey it God we fall short We fall short in our obedience to you. We fall short in the way we treat others. We fall short in the way we um, tell others about you. We fall short in controlling our anger. We fall short in staying focused on the things you would have us focused on. But we sit here today saying, Lord, or we bow here today saying, Lord, woe is us. Woe is me, I am lost, I am ruined. 
because in your presence I recognize that without you there is no light. Lord, I pray that you will encourage us today, that you will remind us that when we repent of our sins, that when we we set aside our own desires for your desires, that that frees us to serve you in ways that we can't even possibly fathom for ourselves. That frees us to be sent out on your mission. That frees us to be the light in the darkness that this world so desperately needs. And that it frees us to live in your light, in your glory, in your hope, in your love. Lord, I pray that we will have the courage to get out of our own ways. To set aside those things that keep us from approaching you. And that keep us from living within your glory. Thank you, God, for your mercy, your grace, and your faithfulness. It is in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, and God bless.